Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. I know this program is 70 over 70, but uh, I really wish I were younger. I wish I were 70, but I am ready. I'm 72 years old. I'm 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. be 94 in May. I'm 101 years old. My name is Travis Mays. I'm 71, and I live in Cedar Hill, Texas. What am I learning from making barbecue? Patience and respect. Barbecue is not fast food. You know, it takes time to cook. The pit that you cook on, you have to respect it, you know. It's me and the pit, you know, like we're a team. If I treat the pit right, it'll treat me right. When I first started cooking barbecue, you know, I wasn't no pit master. I would come in early in the morning and try to put my beef on. And, you know, I was trying to cook in like in four hours, four hours and a half but it wasn't working. So one day I decided that I was going to put my beef on and let it cook until I got ready to go home. I put it on the fire and let it start cooking and I went home. So next morning, it popped in my mind that I didn't take the beef off the fire. I mean, I really got, I was really shook, you know, so I was like, Oh, man, golly, I left that beef on. And, you know, I drove on down there, jumped out the car, you know, and ran inside, opened the pit door up. And I was like, I'm going to throw them in the trash. And I reached in the pit, 
picked it up. It was tender and juicy. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> they was perfect. This is not an easy job. It's not no backyard Saturday afternoon. This is a real job. But I'm thankful, you know, that I know how to do this because it's a whole bunch of people that think they can cook barbecue, but they cannot. You eat their barbecue, you just kind of, yeah, okay, man. Yeah, all right, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, you don't want to tell them, man, this barbecue ain't worth a nothing. I mean, you know, barbecue to me is like, uh, it took me a while to perfect it. But now I know how to cook the best beef in Texas. <laughs> That was Travis Mays, and from Pineapple Street Studios, this is 70 Over 70, a show about making the most of the time we have left. I'm Max Linsky. My guest this week is Michio Kaku, the co-founder of Stringfield Theory. I'm not going to try to explain Stringfield Theory right now, but the short version is that it's basically an explanation of everything, a way of understanding how every single thing in the universe interacts with every other single thing in the universe. It's a big idea, and it's one that Michio has been obsessed with since he was eight years old, when he read an obituary for Albert Einstein. Eight-year-old Michio decided right there that he would finish Einstein's work. And then he actually did. I wanted to know what that felt like to accomplish your childhood dream. And I was curious about what comes next once you do. How do you not get complacent after you've figured out how literally everything works? Well, you start thinking about the future, the planet's future, humanity's future, and your own. Michio Kaku is 74 years old. Michio, welcome to the uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Glad to be on the show. I have um, so many things that I want to ask you about, but um, you're the first person that I've talked to who has really dedicated a significant portion of their professional lives to thinking about aging and how aging will change. Maybe you could help me understand what you think it'll be like when I'm when I'm seventy in terms of biotechnology. What is aging going to feel like thirty years from now? As one person said, we are the last generation to die. That's a depressing thought, isn't it? (laughs) Knowing that future generations, death may be an option for them. Because what is aging anyway? Why do we have to die? It's because of, well, with time, errors build up. Skin begins to wrinkle, muscles begin to atrophy, DNA begins to have errors in it. And when we're young, we can repair a lot of these mistakes. But when we get older, even those repair mechanisms begin to fail. And that's why we get old. In fact, that's why we die. But there are a lot of different kinds of theories now about how we may be able to reverse some of this stuff. Not just the biological clock, but the actual buildup of errors within DNA. And one day, not in my lifetime, I figured that out when I was a kid. It's not (laughs) gonna happen in my lifetime. But I think in our grandchildren's lifetime, 
they may have the option of slowing down the aging process and maybe stopping. They may like to be 30 years of age for many decades to come. That is well within the laws of physics, and I think it's a real possibility, but unfortunately, not for my generation. That's how you think this is going to manifest, is uh, you'll be able to just like pick an age and stop at some point? I think so. I think there are two ways in which we'll become immortal eventually. And again, there's nothing in the laws of physics saying that you can't be immortal. The first is digital immortality, which is coming actually very soon. Already in Silicon Valley, they're offering to digitize everything known about you. Your digital signature, credit card transactions, all your Instagram photographs. In the future, we'll have a very good picture of your consciousness, in fact. And for example, I would love to talk to Einstein. I would love to sit down in a library to talk to a digitized version that contains every known piece of literature, film, writing of Einstein. And that's the library of the future. We'll have a library of souls. So when we become digitized, we will be immortal. So this, I think, is something that is very feasible. The process is beginning now. And I think in that sense, we'll begin to live forever. Hmm. Now, what about biological immortality? Well, there's something called the second law of thermodynamics, which in some sense is a death warrant. Things decay. Things fall apart. Airs build up. Things rust. That's the law of nature. For example, telomeres are like a biological clock. They're at the end of the chromosome, and they're sort of like your shoestring. When you tie your shoestring often enough, the plastic tips begin to fray. And when they fray, the whole... Uh, shoelace begins to fray, and that's a chromosome. But you see, the second law of thermodynamics only works for closed systems. But you see, in open systems, the second law no longer applies. In other words, if we from the outside can use gene therapy to fix those broken genes, then there's nothing in the laws of physics preventing you from living forever. And already, scientists are beginning to look at this process at the cellular level. Now, don't believe the hype. Don't believe that we have the fountain of youth now. But I think the fountain of youth, credibly, could happen in this century. Oh, that kind of blows my mind. I want to ask you about both sides of that immortality equation that you just laid out, both digital and physical. You said that you'd love to have a conversation with Einstein, and you have this long, long history with that. If you had the opportunity to talk to him, what do you think you'd say? Well, when I was eight years old... I had an inspiration. I saw a photograph of a man's desk who had just died, and they said that there was an unfinished book on that desk by a great scientist. I was fascinated by that story. Why couldn't he finish that book? Why couldn't he ask his mother? What's so hard? Well, that man who died was Albert Einstein, and that book was the unified field theory. And I said to myself, that's what I want to do for a living. I want to help complete that book. Mm -hmm. Einstein once said that unless a theory can be explained to a child, the theory is probably useless. Now, by that, he meant that great theories are not mathematics. Great theories are principles that you can explain to a child. Now, Einstein had two great principles. He had a picture on the first try. That gave us the atomic bomb. He had a picture for the second try. That gives us black holes and big bangs. But there was no picture for the third try. And I would ask him, what pictures did you envision? I mean, what kind of avenues did you pursue thinking that you could complete this grand scheme of a theory of everything? Hmm. 
what were the mistrials? What were the dead ends? And then I would explain to him what string theory is all about, and I would love to get his reaction. What do you think it would be? I think he would be amazed that it is in the spirit of the two previous theories. However, Einstein hated the quantum theory. String theory is a quantum theory. Sorry about that. You can't get everything. <laughs> so I think Einstein would have been disappointed that the theory of everything is a quantum theory. So eight-year-old Michio in California sees this photo of this desk with an unfinished piece of work and decides, I'm going to pick it up. That's right. And then you actually do it. What do you do next? Well, I like to think of this as a chess game. The destiny of humans is to, over thousands of years, work out the moves of the chess game. 2,000 years later, we figure out how the pawns move and how the bishop moves. But then one day, we'll figure out all the rules, the whole ball of wax, the rules of chess, and become grand masters. That's the goal, to become grand masters of the chess game. That, I think, is our destiny, because every time we work out a force, it changes world history. When mm -hmm. Newton worked out the force of mechanics and gravity, that gave us the Industrial Revolution, which changed modern history, lifted us from poverty of agrarian society into the machine age. Then Maxwell and Faraday worked out electricity. That gave us the electric age. And then the quantum theory gives us lasers and the internet and transistors and all the wonders in our living room. Think of it, a theory of everything would give you all those things plus answer the mystery of the Big Bang, where it came from, black holes, what's on the other side of a black hole, time travel, is time travel possible? Gateways, are there gateways to other universes? Ultimately, I think that the destiny of humanity will rest on this theory. We're not talking about the theory of tomorrow, we're talking about the theory of the universe itself. Yeah, it's about as big as it gets. Yeah, that's right. But for you personally, what do you do next? Well, you see, just because you know the rules of chess doesn't make you a grand master. And we talked about the aging process, right? Realize that the universe is also aging. The universe is dying. The laws of physics are a death warrant for the entire universe. According to the laws of physics and the second law of thermodynamics, everything runs down. Everything rusts, falls apart, decays, disintegrates. That's the second law of thermodynamics. And the universe must also obey the second law. So one day, the universe will consist of black holes, dying stars. It'll be super cold, and all intelligent life will die. That's where this theory comes in. At that point, we will be so advanced, we will use this theory to create a bubble, another bubble, an escape hatch, a lifeboat that takes us from this dying bubble into a young, vibrant, warmer bubble so we can start all over again and mess up that universe as well. <laughs> we'll have two universes to mess up. So that, I think, is the aging process of the universe itself. All right. I still feel like maybe you haven't quite answered my question, which is, when you figured the thing out, how did it feel? And what did it mean to you personally? Not to the chess game, but to just to you, like to the grown-up version of that eight-year-old kid. Well, first of all, string theory is not in its final form. String field theory, which I created, gives you an equation two inches long 
but it doesn't include what are called membranes. So we now realize that strains can coexist with membranes. So we're not quite there at the point where we say, Eureka, this is the final one-inch equation. We're not quite there yet. However, when I discovered string field theory, which is the equations just for strings, not of membranes, it was, well, it was a good feeling. Yeah. You really feel like you're part of the universe. <laughs> I would imagine. Now, the feeling I had was that on the other side of the galaxy, there's probably an alien on the other side of the galaxy writing down the same theory in different language, of course. <laughs> and you really begin to feel part, part and parcel of the universe itself beyond any work of any particular culture. This is the universe, the book, not of a human, but the book of Mother Nature itself. I love that in that moment, you were thinking about someone else doing the same thing. That feels like um, the sign of a very healthy ego to me. Yeah, that you're part. You're not creating it out of nothing. You're part of a much larger picture and that you're feeling one cog, one piece of a much larger picture. So it's humbling in the sense that you realize that this is an awfully big picture, but then you begin to appreciate Mother Nature who created this theory to begin with. And that's a gratifying feeling. And it makes you want to do more work. It doesn't feel like, well, now I've done the thing I set out to do and all that's left is like uh, sit on the beach and have a daiquiri. Um, as um, Archimedes, the great Greek mathematician, when he discovered the law of buoyancy, he ran through the streets of Athens naked, yelling out, Eureka, Eureka, I have found it. I have found the principle of why things float. So it's not quite like that. No one's going to run around naked in the streets of New York City. What was your version of that? Like when you nailed the theory of everything, what did you do? Did you like go out and have some nachos? How do you celebrate something like that? No, it's just this inner feeling, this inner feeling that you've done something which is potentially universal. You're part. You feel like you're part of a much larger community, a community of conscious beings that are self-aware, that dare to wonder why things are the way they are. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast 
Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought... How great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker, a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Would you mind quickly just giving me the um, real dummies version of string theory? I've been reading about it for days now, and I'm not totally sure I understand it yet. Well, you know, the Greeks, like Pythagoras, wanted a paradigm, a theme, some way to summarize the rich diversity of the universe into a single picture. And one day he was looking at a lyre string, and he realized that the longer the lyre string, the lower the note. Then he went to a blacksmith shop and he saw that the longer the piece of metal, the lower the vibration. And then he said, I can use mathematics to describe this thing. So he worked out the mathematics of music. And then Pythagoras said, the variety, the richness of music is rich enough to explain the universe. Well, great idea, but it never went anywhere. But now we have the birth of string theory. Now, what, what does that do? Each vibration of a string from a distance looks like a particle. From a distance, a vibrating string, very tiny, looks like a particle. And you have different particles because you have different notes. So how many particles are there? Probably an infinite number. We've cataloged hundreds of them. There are probably millions of them, different vibrations of a tiny string. So what is physics? Physics is the harmonies that you can write on strings. What is chemistry? Chemistry is the melodies you can play on strings when they bump into each other. What is the universe? The universe is a symphony of strings. Hmm. So when you become as comfortable as you are with the expanse of possibility and the expanse of the universe, I'm really curious, genuinely, how you navigate the day-to-day frustrations and anxieties and to-do lists of life when your answer to like, how did it feel was, I wonder how it felt for the alien who was doing the same thing. Like when you're that connected to this expanse, how do you like remember to pick up milk on the way home? How do you deal with the small shit when you're so in touch with how meaningless it is? Well, the bottom line is you have to pay your dues. In order to dream big, 
you have to, first of all, do the small things and you got to do them well. And so, yes, it means you have to clean up after yourself. <laughs> yes, it means you, if you make a mess of things, you got to get the vacuum cleaner out. Yes, you get yelled at if you don't do it right, so on and so forth. But that goes into territory. That's just the way life is. You take the good with the bad and it makes you a better person too. But how do you, how do, you do that? Like, You've dedicated your whole life to figuring out very specifically why things are. But then in this other stuff that we all do, you're kind of like, ah, that's life. You just got to get the milk sometimes. You know, children, when I talk to them, I tell them that it really helps to have a role model, maybe a parent, uh, a relative, uh, maybe somebody who's already attained what you want to become. The wheel's already been invented. Why reinvent the wheel? So I read up about Einstein. And I realized all the twists and turns of his life. Yes, he had to pick up the garbage. Yes, he got fired. In fact, uh, just before he worked out relativity, he got fired by his boss because he was an unruly tutor. He was trying to sell insurance one time, looking for a job. Can you imagine opening the door and there's Albert Einstein selling you insurance? (laughs) (laughs) This is reality. He had to pay his dues. We live in a society, right? So I began to realize that, hey, this is what you have to do. Life is not just a bed of roses. Mm -hmm. You have the second law of thermodynamics, i.e. chaos. And a certain amount of chaos makes you stronger, in fact, if you can navigate them. So I tell people, look at day-to-day life as a challenge because it makes you a better person, a better member of society. Because for all the great ideas we can think about, the bottom line is your feet are implanted in society. Do you have bad days? Like, do you have shitty days? The bad day is when you have an equation and you are stuck. For example, people sometimes ask me, how do we physicists think? We physicists think much the same way that a composer thinks. How does a composer create music? For the most part, they have melodies, fragments of melodies dancing in their head. And they look out the window, and until these melodies and these fragments come together, they do nothing. They're stuck. Then... When they suddenly begin to fit together, then you go to a piano. Then you begin to plunk out some of the tunes that are coming up. Then you go back and look out the window again, (laughs) looking for the next passage. That's how we physicists work. Because look, sometimes you get stuck. Sometimes you get stuck for months. Einstein got stuck for years sometimes. But he had the determination to stick with it for all those years. So you roll with the punches, basically. You get stuck. You roll with the punches. I mean, that doesn't necessarily just feel like rolling with the punches to me. That feels like really sincere optimism. Well, the bottom line is you have to be optimistic. Uh, As General Eisenhower once said, pessimists never win a war. Even if optimists exaggerate their victory, at least they have a plan for victory. And pessimists, how many pessimists have made history? How many pessimists do you read about in the history books? No, they're all optimists, because optimists make history. And the same thing with physics. Is it genius that creates a great Einstein? Well, yeah, part of it. But part of it is luck. And part of it is hard work. The nitty-gritty of sitting down and doing the hard work. I wonder how that fits, though, with the causes that you have championed over the course of your life. Like you You've been talking about and and fighting against climate change for decades. You have led protests against nuclear warfare. You have taken really political positions that are connected to your work. Maybe they don't feel political to you. 
And some of those things, certainly the environment, are only getting worse, getting more dangerous, getting more serious. How do you stay optimistic in the face of that? Well, realizing that social change, social change does not come about just because people bitch about it all the time. <laughs> no, social change comes because people have studied the question and have come up with reasonable answers to these kinds of questions. Then we can debate these reasonable solutions. But if all we do is bellyache, all we do is complain, then we're not going to get anywhere. We physicists, believe it or not, have seriously looked at the future, uh, not just 100 years, but thousands of years into the future, about these kinds of questions. Uh, we divide these civilizations of the future into three types, type one, type two, type three. A type one civilization has planetary energy. They control the weather, like, for example, Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. Type two is stellar. They control the energy output of an entire star. That's like Star Trek. Star Trek would be a typical type two civilization. Then there's type three, galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They play with black holes. That's type three, like Star Wars. Now, on this cosmic scale, what are we? Do we play with the weather as type one? Do we play with the sun as type two? Do we play with the galaxy like Star Wars in type three? No, we're type zero. We get our energy from dead plants. But we can dream about the time when we become type one, around the year 2100. So what could get in the way? What could prevent us from becoming type one is, as you mentioned, three things, global warming, nuclear warfare, and killer germs. These are the three things that threaten the entire human race. So it's a race. It's a race against time to see whether or not humans can mature fast enough to overcome these three problems or whether we descend back into barbarism and we, we become primitive once again. So that's where we are today. We're at the beginning of a type one civilization. But are we mature enough to negotiate a type one civilization? That is not clear. One thing that is clear or, or is clearer to me now having done this show for a little bit is that Younger generations feel quite frustrated with older generations and the world that's getting left behind, whether it's climate change or systemic racism or nuclear warfare. There's real antagonism, I think, uh, on the part of younger people for older generations. I wonder how you understand the relationship between generations and, and whether you think those young people who are so pissed off are getting something wrong. Well, I think for one thing, it's good to be pissed off because you want a better world. You're not satisfied with the world as it is. You want to create a better world. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that young people feel that way. However, it's bad if they turn inward. It's bad if they start to get frustrated and depressed and they begin to realize things are hopeless because you need hope to create a new world. See, we're talking about creating a new world. That means first you have to recognize the problems of the old world and then lay out an agenda for the next world. This sense of optimism that you keep returning to, is it, is it work for you or does it come naturally to you? Well, it's second nature, but of course you have to have the alternative. 
when people say, well, well and good, your opinion, but hey, you know, what's the alternative or what's the solution? In other words, positive program. Unless you have a positive program, all you can do is bellyache. And I think that there's a, a lack of positive programs. For every negative, there has to be someone with a positive program. I mean, what's your solution? What's your policy? What's the answer? That's what people want to hear. Is there any piece of it that's connected to faith? When you grew up, your parents were practicing Buddhists. You went to like a Presbyterian Sunday school. You've had this whole career in theoretical physics, which in a way, at least to me, feels connected to some real spiritual ideas. Well, the nice thing about Buddhism is it introduces the concept of nirvana. Nirvana is timelessness, a state of high consciousness. And I think that people who believe in nirvana want inner peace, and they believe in this higher consciousness beyond the worldly constraints of the world today. And that is how physics is leaning toward, that the world we see today is only a fraction of the actual world. And we're forced into it because of the quantum theory. In order for the quantum theory to make sense, we almost have to have other universes, other worlds, other higher states of consciousness. Do you, um, do you feel an inner peace? Well, inner peace knowing that you feel one with the universe, that you're not divorced from it. So many people who are depressed think that they are outside the universe in some sense. You know, we have a right to be here, just like the trees. Does a tree ask itself, do I have the right to be here? No, the tree, of course, has a right to be here. Well, we do too. We have a right to be here in the same reason that the trees have a right to be here. So I don't question that. And that's present for you? Yeah. So how's aging going for you? Uh, well, so far, so good. I mean, the main thing is to have good energy because people who are optimistic have less stress hormones, uh, less wear and tear on their body. Uh, they don't drink and get drunk and then worry about things uh, that are not important. And as a consequence, there's less damage to their body. And... Molecular damage, genetic and molecular damage, is aging. And there are things you can do to slow it down and to perhaps one day even reverse it. Why do you want to slow it down? What do you still want to do? Well, of course, we'd all want to live forever. Uh, that, of course, is hardwired into our being, uh, that you want to live forever. You want to see, quote, beyond your years, unquote. I would love to see beyond my years, because what's beyond my years is a transition to type 1. We are headed toward a planetary civilization. I'd like to see that. Unfortunately, I probably won't. But I would love to see the day when we become planetary, around the year 2100. And how have you made your peace with the fact that you can see that, and yet you might not be able to see it for yourself? Yeah, that's a little frustrating. You see, when I was a child, I had a role model. That was Albert Einstein. But on weekends, they had reruns of Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I used to watch Flash Gordon every Saturday, and they had starships, they had ray guns, they had cities in the sky, cities underwater. And I said to myself, wow, hey, that's pretty neat. <laughs> so I would love to see Beyond My Time, because that, of course, is what science fiction does. It teases you, thinking that their stories can give you a glimpse into the future which doesn't yet exist or may never exist. Later in life, I begin to realize that these two strains one, Einstein, and the other is Flash Gordon, were the same. That if you really want to understand the future, 
you have to understand physics. The physics of aging, biochemistry, all that stuff comes right out of physics. And if you understand physics, you have a, a leg up on understanding the future. That eight-year-old kid, he still looms like pretty large for you, huh? Yeah. You know, um, I do interviews sometimes on radio, and I've interviewed Nobel laureates. And I ask them, when was it that steered you in the direction of physics? And they always say the same thing. They always say, when I was 10 years old, it all started. It was a telescope, a visit to the planetarium. That's when it all started. And then I begin to realize that we're all born scientists. All of us are born scientists, especially around the age of 10. That's when we go beyond mommy and daddy and think about the world. How big is the world beyond them? Hmm. Then, then they hit the biggest killer of scientists known to science. And that is junior high school. <laughs> we lose millions of young kids in junior high school. Millions of them. Great scientists saying, I don't want to become a scientist. It's boring. It's just memorizing the parts of a flower. It's just regurgitating boring stuff that I'll never use again. We lose them because we make science so boring. It's all memorization <laughs> that who wants to become a scientist? Science is about principles, concepts like evolution or the aerodynamics of flying. It has nothing to do with, well, something to do with names. You have to give names to some of these things, but that's not what science is. But that's what people think science is. So when I write a book, I try to put principles, concepts, concepts that'll stay with you for the rest of your life, rather than simply giving names to the stars or names to the planets. That's not science. It's also about creativity. Creativity and the mysterious and the unknown. Einstein said that what's more important than knowledge is the unknown, the mystery of the universe. That's what inspires people, not the names of the planets, but the possibilities of unknown planets. That's what stimulates scientific investigation. All right, I want to ask you about one more thing then I'll let you go, okay? Okay. This might just be uh, betraying myself as, as uh, a total pessimist even after this conversation. But are you scared of dying? Well, I think it's genetic that we have no choice but to be afraid of dying because that's what evolution says. You have to survive, have children, have progeny, help the next generation survive so their genes can propagate. But, you know, like I said, I think digitally we'll live forever. It's not, of course, the biological you, but something of you will live forever. And your memories, your thoughts, desires, your consciousness will live forever when you're digitized. And you'll be able right. to add, interact with other digitized souls as well. So you see, there's hope. But uh, you, you try not to think about it. Because, of <laughs> course, it is the end of everything. Seventy Over Seventy is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, and it's produced by Jess Hackle. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Research and additional reporting by Charlie Locke. Our mixers are Raj Makija and Elliot Adler. And Jenna Weiss-Berman and I are the executive producers. Our theme song is Like a Dream by Francis and the Lights. And the music you're listening to right now is by Arthur Russell, who would have been 70 this year. 
Original music by Terrence Bernardo, additional music by Noble Kids, and music licensing by Dan Kanishkawi. Our cover art is by Myra Coleman, who's 72. And our episode art is by Lynn Staley, who's 73 and also is my mom. Thank you, Travis Mays. And thank you, Michio Kaku. I'm Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. Here's a